Welcome to another episode of Absolute AppSec, where uh, I believe this is episode 10. I'm joined by our co-host, my co-host, Seth Law. Hey, everybody. Welcome. And we've got a special guest tonight, uh, Jimmy Mesta. Jimmy, say hi. Hey, everyone. Do you prefer Jimmy or Jim? Jimmy's good. I'll transition to Jim in like 10 years or so. (laughs) Once you get some gray hair, you can decide, right? Exactly. Become more distinguished. (laughs) No, then I go to James. Then you go to James. Yeah. That's twenty years. That's twenty years. Yeah, that's when I hit. Yeah, I hit fifty years old. That's yeah, exactly. You got to earn James. You do. Um, so to give you all a little brief introduction uh, to Jimmy, uh, I met Jimmy a while back. I I don't remember the year, but Jimmy uh, Jimmy has co-organized uh, apps at Cali for what? Like, is it been four years or five years? All or? of them except for this last one because baby but yes um but though the first one with neil when he was the the founding founding father so yeah and now he's off spawn uh building another conference with uh with is it jim manico the uh, locomoco sec one yeah yep and jeremiah grossman i believe so oh nice so um jimmy you know You've done a couple things I wanted everyone to know before we really kind of get into it is that you've done uh, a couple what I would consider like one of those uh, tackling a lot of things type roles, meaning the security team you've worked on has not been huge. And uh, you've ha- you know been responsible. I mean, at TrueCar, Invoca, um, playing blue team, playing defense and, you know, working with the the resources that you had. So that's kind of, I mean, would you, is it accurate to say that's kind of your background as you've, you've dealt with uh, kind of getting creative? Yeah. um, My background, most recent background is on the defensive side for sure. Uh, I did have a two and a half year stint as pure web application penetration tester uh, at a company called Redspin. So just doing assessments for banks and hospitals and pretty standard consulting stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that's definitely accurate. The one man show for a little bit building up what would be the application and information security programs at mostly SaaS companies. So, yeah, I mean, if anyone has any questions, you know, in the, that someone like Jimmy could could answer, uh, please post them in the live chat because I think that you have a unique perspective having um, played that role. Uh, Jimmy has done a lot of, I mean, he's speaker, trainer, um, open source contributor. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about his training course um, and about just in general Kubernetes and uh, Docker, basically container security and deployment, uh, the security of those deployments. Um. You know, uh, one one of the questions that I, I wanted to to get right into, Jimmy, is where are you now, and what are you working on? Um, I am physically located right now in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, recently moved here. Have I have a, a two month old named Giovanni, so he's he's already uh, popping shells every now and then before he goes to bed. So uh, he's been it's been awesome. Um, we I moved here from Santa Barbara, but. For work, uh, my journey has been, I, I would say, like, 
traditional and in other industries, but for InfoSec is, is a little bit different. So I actually graduated with a degree in information security, uh, took a technical track at Penn State University. Uh, I was the first full graduating class with that degree um, in 2009. So uh, that was pretty eye-opening and everybody was asking me at the time, like, what are you gonna do with this degree? It's even, it's not that long ago, but it seems semi, like people didn't understand what the job market looked like. And uh, started working at a company called Agilent Technologies um, on, on their security and risk management team. So uh, pretty large company, spin off of HP. And I, they, well, because nobody else wanted to do it. AppSec wasn't even like, that was just an afterthought. It was a checkbox they needed and they spent a bunch of money on these really nice imperva WAFs and let me, the brand new college grad, just plug my computer into them and put them right in front of production applications, breaking SSL and doing all sorts of bad things and causing downtime. But really that was like, sparked a huge interest in just application security, software security. Knew I didn't want to really go too far down the network or risk management uh, rabbit hole. So um, went to a SANS course, thought it was awesome and decided to become a pen tester. Did that for a couple years. And really like, I recommend anybody who wants to jump into this field, do, you know, do a stint as a consultant doing web app pen tests or network pen tests, red teaming, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think it's just a really, it was just a really cool time to work on those assessments. And uh, then later went to become, I guess the first hire, uh, first full-time hire at TrueCar on their ops team. They didn't have a security team at the time quite yet. So did that and built everything I could from the ground up at a pretty large company. There were like seven, 600 employees or something at the time. Um, and then I got to use lots of AppSec skills and I had to learn a ton about compliance and training and architecture and all the, all the good stuff that comes with riding solo. Uh, then ended up at another SaaS company a little closer to home so I didn't have to drive two hours to the office in Santa Monica uh, called Invoca where I spent a couple years there and kind of did the same thing just... Um, I had a lot of lessons learned, so it was much, much more uh, smooth than than before. And actually, was able to get uh, Invoca PCI certified. So I had to wear a compliance hat for a while. Did a lot of privacy stuff and built an AppSec program there, and kind of helped form their what now is a more mature Kubernetes environment. Um, it was very early stages then. So, and now I'm an independent contractor trying to run my own little consulting company uh, called Nesta Machine. And I primarily do technical hands-on training uh, for pretty large organizations, but I guess uh, any size. And I do still do web application testing quite a bit. And I do online uh, security modules and, and a little bit of research sprinkled in there. So I'm you know, talking to Seth earlier. Now it's like I have four full-time jobs instead of one. Uh, but I really like it. I'm constantly challenged and I have way less meetings, which I'm super happy about.
Yeah, yeah. Was a big thing, right? <laughs> it's huge. Yeah, I didn't realize how that would go away like it did. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, what, what I find is you know the one to two that I have, I'm like super stressed about. Whereas you, you know, you used to have like six or seven of them in a day, and it just wasn't a big deal. But yeah, there's no tap your shoulder and come into this room. I need to ask you a couple questions. Type meetings. Um, yeah, so I'm lately. I've been working on a uh, a two day uh, securing modern DevOps environments course. It's called, and uh, it's a hands on, totally like technical course on building a Kubernetes cluster. Um, deploy and well, actually, it's taking a simple API, Dockerizing it, scanning it for vulnerabilities, building a cluster, deploying the app, and then hardening the cluster, and then building a a, a minimal. Uh, monitoring and alerting and, and a little CI CD pipeline within it. So that's, I've just been heads down for like months now. So doing that and I'm, I'm loving it. So. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's um, my story. <laughs> they, it, out of curiosity, I had a couple questions, but the, the, the first one was in terms of, uh, I was just waiting to make sure I didn't interrupt Seth again, <laughs> but um, the, what was your what what made you go for the information security degree being that that was and you know you, you said it's not that long ago but nine years is a huge has been there's been a huge evolution and and oh yeah a lot of changes in nine years so yeah what was your um i mean how did you get interested in in that well i i always i guess i had a knack i was always hanging out in the computer lab in like high school and stuff and doing little websites and we would make basically edit videos and put them on HTML sites. And so I went into Penn State not really knowing what a full-time job even meant at the time. And I had a little bit of push from the family to be like, you need to go down this track. It's, it's like, look at the average starting salary, just go there. Because I wanted to be a graphic designer at first. Um, and then I started in the School of Information Sciences and Technology, which is like it's in the same building as computer science, but it, it's more like in between a business major and a comp sci major where you kind of, they bridge that gap in between the two. And then they spun up a new major as I was there uh, in security. And I just thought like they had some guest speakers come in because the NSA actually, from what I understand, funded the majority of the major because uh, they wanted to handpick some college grads after. And, uh, I just thought the people doing this stuff that came in to talk to us, that was the coolest thing ever. Like espionage and these crazy stories. And I, it was just so new and exciting. So I was semi aimless at the time anyways. So I decided to just take it for a ride. And now I can't even fathom doing something else. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I'm watching these questions in live chat. And uh, they range from everything from uh, <laughs> Candlewood Sweets, or no? What was that? It's oh, I think it was supposed, sweets. It, oh, it, it was supposed to be Candlewood Sweets because I know this whole thing there, but I know the story, the backstory on that. But um, oh. do the, I do the, I know the backstory on that? <laughs> you know what? I mean, why not? So the backstory on this is that um, so this is Mike who's asking questions. Mike, myself. Um, and a couple other people, uh, like we went to 
and so in Austin and Alaskan, we went to uh, Candlewoods. And even when we didn't want to go to Candlewood Suites, because of hotel issues, we ended up back at Candlewood Suites. And it is sketchy as hell. So, uh, but you know what? They treated us right. And uh, it, was, it was fine. So um, <laughs> it was like this whole, because like we, man. I, the stories we could tell about Candlewood Suites. There's, there's something there. There's a, there's a whole nother episode there, but um, there's some magic behind the Candlewood Suites, huh? There is, there is, yeah. If magic by magic you mean pretty sure the uh, neighbors are making meth in their hotel bathroom bathtub, then um, that's yes. magic. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, science, man. Science. <laughs> it is science. <laughs> oh. So the uh, the first relevant, I think, kind of um, relevant question was Kubernetes or ECS for uh, managing containers. I, it, that's a total preference from a security perspective. You could probably end up at the same result. You could misconfigure both of them. <laughs> I personally tried to... I made a really solid go at ECS about six months ago, um, and I just didn't find it to be ha have the features I needed that Kubernetes offered. Um, so, is that from a security perspective or just a usability? Just usability. I didn't dive in. I didn't dive into the security internals of it totally. Uh, I'd imagine a lot of the things, problems that could exist in Kubernetes would also exist there, and. Uh, if you're native to AWS and you're not leaving and you're okay with being tied into AWS for your container orchestration, then not a bad option because everything is already there. You don't have to set up a new cluster or billing because setting up Kubernetes in AWS can be, that's its own separate daunting task also. It's getting easier, but um, I kind of jumped on the full GKE Google Cloud bandwagon. I have a friend that's a solutions architect for Kubernetes, and he had started like writing code in GoLang and doing everything in Google. So I kind of wait. Google has a cloud platform. I I'm confused. <laughs> Messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's it's pretty good. I, yeah. <laughs> no, um, no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a. Uh, I know AWS is. AWS is king right now. But oh, it's totally king, and Google's not quite hanging. But um, Seth uh, and I had our fair share of issues with Google Cloud, to be fair, with like, um, I mean, there were like issues where the, where, where there would be, I can't remember if it was low, mem was it low memory or low disk space, something like that. And then like we tried bumping up the settings and saying like, Hey, you can charge us more. And then that was so that interface was so counterintuitive that we didn't end up checking the right thing. And it was really confusing. And then basically we ended up every once in a while coming to that same error. And then, yeah, it, eventually we figured it out, but it was like the worst interface for managing um, costs and memory and all that stuff. I mean, was it memory or, it was memory. Yeah, it was like, you know, once you go over your memory allotment for so long, they just kill the process, right? Right. Yeah, I, it, it has its shortcomings. Um, but GKE is like the Google Kubernetes engine. Uh, managed Kubernetes is, it's pretty sweet. I mean, you it takes a lot of 
the configuration and all of a lot of the maintenance out of it upgrades are fairly smooth um i'm a fan like it's just cool you know so cloud, is it cloud, is cloud shell is, course? is that what you're using in the course is the uh that local so the, there's two versions of the course that one will use gke uh for for large groups that gets a little precarious when you want to have like 200 people sign up for a free tier of Google Cloud at the same time and then set all that up. Uh, so um, I have a version that uses Minikube. So that's a local Kubernetes single node cluster using VirtualBox, like pretty minimal footprint to install. Uh, and you can get, it's gotten pretty good. You can do almost everything you would want to do in GKE. You're missing, obviously you don't have like the load balancer type because it can't spin up a cloud load balancer for you, things like that. But um, I, I'd say for the the basics, it's it's pretty good. If you have enough memory on your machine. If you have enough memory. <laughs> well, isn't that always the caveat, right? With virtual machines, yeah. I, I actually, the way I set it up is like, we're not, we're not running anything crazy. It's like a hundred line go API and a couple sidecar pods. And it's, you know, it, it runs fine on Minikube, even with a, a beat up machine, I think it would do okay. Which is that sort of, I mean, isn't that sort of the point though, is to use such like incredibly lightweight services and, and, and have multiple, you know, microservices, these little APIs that um, can all communicate with one another. Um, yeah, the I mean the monolith decoupling the monolith is a thing and I but it's a balance, right? Because I tried to do so a background I rewrote I have a Chrome extension that I'll shamelessly plug called unshortened.link. Um it basically is because I hate link shorteners and I hate clicking on any link that's shortened. But anyways, uh the extension automatically expands it. So I tried to I've, I've rewritten it like three or four times in this last go around was using Golang and Kubernetes. And that costs me way more to run it than I make off of it. Cause I make $0 off of it currently. But anyways, it's a good learning opportunity. And yeah, it, um, I tried to break everything up into microservices, but it's not always that it's not always that easy. And I don't think you should do it for the sake of it. If you're not running into performance issues, and you don't have separate teams working on each API, then it might not be the best use of your time. But that's just my opinion. Wait, yeah, so it's sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say, so one architecture doesn't fit for everything? Again, yeah. I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you would think that everything should be a microservice at this point, but I do think that it doesn't always work out that way. No, it doesn't. It doesn't always scale. Sorry, Ken, what were you going to say? Same thing, different way. <laughs> yeah, no, because there's there's the cost associated with the uh, with you know, maintaining and with um, just the actual like costs of running this, and then there you know the complexity. There's a complexity cost. Um, so I, I you know when you have to authenticate all of these microservices, and that's never easy. You know, it's that's in, in Kubernetes like. Uh, what is it? it uh, Istio has a service mesh that can help do that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I talk about it in the training, but it's like most people don't 
they don't have the in-house expertise to set things like that up properly. So um, the monolith can make you lots of money if you run a company. So it's funny how my mind has shifted to just that. So <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you can get off the ground, you can get something going, you know. Yeah, and then you peel off things as they become overburdened or the load becomes too high, and then you start considering microservices as you need them. I I don't know the exact answer, but it's not start with microservices when you have no traffic. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer I've always felt, and you know, again, this is just one person's opinion, but I've always felt you'll know when you have that need. But until you have that need, why why burden yourself with more complexity? I mean, the best built systems are the simplest ones. That's just the I mean, that's the way I've I've you know I've always seen it. At least they start out that way, right? Yeah. Things well, change Kubernetes, over time. Kubernetes doesn't fall into that category whatsoever, but that's okay. Well, you know, okay, so I mean Kubernetes in the sense that it's got some complexity or in the sense that you can manage your deployments uh oh i just think it's 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 complex and people tend to want to use it because it's a thing people use when they don't always they don't always like usually a a traditional path like platform or a platform as a service or there's other ways to like do the things that kubernetes does that are probably it's like learning a different programming language you know so um I would say if if it's if you're at the point where you need that elasticity and that the things that Kubernetes offers, especially if you already have everything in containers and you're ready to make that leap into a kind of heavyweight orchestration tool, it's it's the one to use in my opinion. I just if you're running like Docker Swarm or a Docker Compose on like two servers somewhere behind the load balancer in AWS, I'm just like not sure. It's it's a it's a steep learning curve in my opinion, I, and I'm always I'm still learning new things about it every single day just because it's moving so fast. Now, and I you know, I know Kel- Kelsey Hightower has talked about this a bit, um, but like, it, do you do you think that Google's actually gonna? I mean, have you have you seen? Basically, there there it's been put out that like, hey, Google doesn't want to um, basically add on more and more features at this point. That's what I understood. Like as of, well, uh, maybe a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, and that the, the, any additional features would be in the way of like extensions for Kubernetes. Um, is that a, I mean, what are you seeing? Um, I'm not, I'm not seeing features slow down too much. There is this like cyclical thing of things coming alpha in like one six and then beta and one eight and then you know GA and one nine. And I, I don't see that changing, but they're starting to they've addressed some of those like big concerns, like encrypting secrets at rest in etcd. It's like people were kind of like, why aren't you why aren't we doing that yet? So, you know, they built that in and they have audit functionality now. So I think they're I think they're still building features and I'm I have no idea what Google's plan is um, other than Kubernetes is still what, like the number two like repo or something in GitHub. Like it's, it's, it's widely contributed to. It's a very popular open source project. So I'm not sure that's going to go away. 
Oh yeah, no, I didn't mean go away. I just meant like um, at a certain point from the way I understood it, it was that the core functionality was there and that was developed and then any new features, but I mean, that's just what I heard. Yeah, maybe I can, I got an insider I can ask, we'll see. I, 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 would, I would say you can get almost, you can get a lot of things done currently right now, especially with the ecosystem that is evolving for you know, logging and monitoring and all these sidecar containers. And now like you have like Aqua, Aqua Security and Twistlock and all these guys are out there commercializing Kubernetes security and Sysdig. And so there's, there's a pretty healthy ecosystem growing, which, which I'm happy about. So in terms of like the going back to the API authentication, have you, I mean, so like, have you seen what solutions have you seen? I mean, I know like uh, there's, there's Cognito API gateway. Um, anything else that you've seen used? Sorry, you totally just, maybe that was just for me, but you broke up during oh. that question. Oh, time. I was saying, yeah, sorry about that. I don't know if I'm having internet issues, but um, yeah. So I was asking, you know, have you, going back to the API authentication, uh, like, have you seen like a co Cognito API gateway kind of combination? Have you seen, like, what else have you seen people use to, you know, basically uh, authenticate across various um, pods, we'll say? Uh, or APIs? Ist Ist Istio is what I'm hearing about, you know, people are using uh, with mutual TLS authentication. So, um, I have not dug into it much at all. There's also the notion of um, the pod network network policy, pod network policy, I think it's called. Uh, it's basically like whitelisting pod to pod communication uh, natively in Kubernetes. So that's pretty cool where you could say, I only want, like I only will accept traffic from this pod labeled front end if I'm a backend, uh, and you can do that kind of fine grain control for communications, but mutual TLS authentication is probably the way to go if you actually need to take that seriously. So, but it's definitely challenging. It's not there's there's nothing out of the box that's letting your microservices be authenticated within Kubernetes necessarily. Yeah, I mean, both of those sound like a pretty big time investment or upfront investment to get running properly, right? I mean, mutual TLS always has been, but what other, whatever other services are there. You would think that Kubernetes would make that a little bit easier though. Yeah, I mean, the network policies can, can create quasi firewall rules for you. And again, I just, it's, it's so new, it's fairly new. So I'm not even, haven't seen it in the wild. I'm, I, I fear that there are a lot of misconfigured Kubernetes clusters. It's just a guess, um, but I, I'm, I'm assuming that not a lot of people are looking at this stuff um, with a fine tooth comb. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Twistlock um, and some of those other vendors, right? Are, don't they evaluate some of the network policy? They, they may, yeah. I, I haven't even... The commercial stuff, I don't get much past some of the documentation. Haven't played with them, um, but yeah, Istio has a has an open source product uh, that you can use that can help with that. But um, it's they use what's called an envoy 
Envoy Proxy, Envoy Pod, uh, I think it's called. And it's basically a sidecar pod that all your traffic gets routed through. Okay. Uh, every service, all your traffic will get routed through this. And it sits right next to all your pods, uh, has a certificate authority and the whole nine yards. So you don't actually have to go and like reconfigure your manifest files or, or even your application necessarily to take advantage of it. So I, I do think that that's probably the way to go. Um, but it's not lightweight. Like you couldn't, that, that's a big undertaking to say, Hey, route all my, all my cluster traffic through these new pods that are sitting here. So, um, well, I, I mean, along those lines, right, one of the first questions that we had, I think it was from Mike, was uh, related to evaluating security and, you know, <laughs> and what to use for, what was it, image vuln scanning? Right? What have you used? What's, mm -hmm. what's available out there? What do you recommend? Image vuln scanning is really interesting because everyone says you have to do it and then people always still end up pulling in the default version of Nginx or Redis or whatever. Um, yep. And there's, there's not a lot you can do with that other than building new images yourself, which you can do. But I've, uh, uh, in the course, actually, we use Claire, which is the open source version of Key, K, Quay. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, Q-U-A-Y, I believe. Um, so that, Claire works pretty well uh, in a CI, CD pipeline. Um, and so it's called Claire Scanner in uh, GitHub. So you can check that out. And I think that's probably the way to go if you have images going through sort of a, a Jenkins CI CD environment. And you can say, because you can whitelist a lot of things um, in Claire as well. And then you can stop the build or whatever you want to do after that. Uh, there's also a company out of Santa Barbara called Encore, A-N-C-H-O-R-E. They are uh, really, really good guys, and they are building an open. It's they're, It's a vulnerability scanner, but it's also like a gating architecture where you can put logic into your image builds where you say if this thing doesn't meet a certain threshold or if you're doing a bad import or if you even if your you know, formatting of your of your docker file is is out of whack like do something stop the build whatever you want to do it's built for jenkins style implementations they have an open source uh tool as well and they have a really cool dashboard uh at encore a-n-c-h-o-r-e dot i-o i think uh yeah so that is Pretty sweet because you can just go look. They they just rip through all like Docker Hub uh, for all the public images, run scans on them, and then they uh, they blow them up so they show all the packages they're installing and give them severities. You have links to CVEs, so you can put any repository you want in their site, and you kind of get that for free, which is which is cool. Um, it's just a, it's just a very useful tool, and it's very eye opening when you see these crazy popular images sitting on Docker Hub that are riddled with awfulness. Um, so yeah, definitely check check those out. I've pasted the links to uh, all of everything we've mentioned, I think, 
uh, in the live chat and we'll also put it in the description of this video for those who want to check it out later. Cool. Does that cover the image vulnerability scanning? There's lots of options, but in yeah. the end of, yeah, at the end of the day, you're, you have to make a decision if you're going to pull if your base is from something that has 14 criticals. Yeah, and that's always been the big problem, right? I mean, I think that's why there's so many security people trying to solve it is that, you know, you're starting from something that's so either out of date or vulnerable that it's hard to secure and make sure that it's secured across the board without rolling your own. Yeah, and I think if you're the right way is obviously to roll your own, build it from scratch, um, which you can get a lot of performance benefits that way. Your builds will be take much less time. Um, the images will be way smaller. I, but, you know, not everybody's doing that. Developers, even I'm guilty of definitely, like, from Ruby, do you know, it just makes your life a little easier. So, um, but in in any kind of sensitive environment, you you want to be cognizant of all these vulnerabilities you're bringing in. It's, it's been around forever, right? Like, outdated third-party dependencies, the OWASP talked about top 10 thing all the time, forever and always, like third-party vulnerabilities. Um, and this is no different, uh, except you're basically like bringing in a whole operating system full of them. So it's cool. fun times. Fun times? Well, yeah. fun times for us maybe, but... Yeah, not if you're... I mean, you're not trying to defend it, I guess. You know, it's like... I used to think that stuff was fun and you have to eat, eat your own dog food. Yeah. Drink your own champagne. You drink your own champagne. Yep. There you go. Um, let's see. What else? What other questions do we have in there? We, we had one on, Hey, have you seen Docker um, basically breaking out of the container in the wild? Or have you seen much in that, in that regard, which that seems to come up all the time. Like, Hey, is there a way to, you know, break out of uh, a Docker container and, attack the host or something along those lines? Yeah, it's a great question. It's valid. And I think that was the looming fear several years ago when Docker was the the new kid on the block. Everyone's like, no, you're just going to break out of that and virtual machines for life. But um, I've not seen that in the wild in any customers I work with. Um, There, obviously, you can Google Docker or any sort of container breakout uh, write-ups that are out there and they exist and they probably will continue to exist, but um, it's not a thing I totally worry about. There's actually a, uh, a, a an interesting talk from CloudNativeCon or something, but, you know, he distributed a, a vulnerable Docker image on Docker Hub wrote a couple blog posts about it and like got, you know, 500 pulls in the first month and you don't need to break out of your Docker container if you just implanted that thing all over the place um, because people are just blindly, you know, Docker pool. Like it's a no brainer. So um, that's probably the bigger issue when it comes back to let's, let's, you know, inspect our containers before we actually throw them up on Kubernetes because you have one vulnerable container and a slightly misconfigured Kubernetes cluster, not even misconfigured, just 
not taking advantage of all, all of the hardening features that are out there. Like you could grab, you know, the AWS metadata keys thing. I mean, there's all these things you can do once you're kind of penetrate the, the crunchy exterior in, in your, in a Kubernetes cluster. Um, you, most, uh, yeah. Oh, that? sorry. No, you had broken up for a sec and I was trying oh. to figure out who, where, where was that article so I can post it or who, who gave that talk? Uh, actually it's, uh, uh Brad Giesemann, Symantec, and it's hacking and hardening Kubernetes clusters by example. And it was, at uh, CCNF is who published it. Uh, KubeCon, CloudNativeCon, yeah, last year. Okay. It's a great talk. Um, I He mentions a couple really interesting tools at the end. Uh, that's another space that's, like, evolving as well. Like, uh, Aqua Security has KubeBench. Uh, and then the CIS benchmark is actually really uh, a useful piece of documentation when you're rolling out Kubernetes. Uh, it's for one dot eight still, but it's it's still uh, totally relevant. And that can help guide you in your uh, secure Kubernetes implementation. And then KubeBench audits uh, its command line utility that audits against uh, the CIS benchmark. Very cool. And I mean, it goes to the same kind of like what we already see in application security, you know, being concerned with your, your software supply chain, um, dependency management, uh, what, what solutions are out there. I mean, there's like for that, there's what, there's Black Duck, there's, uh, there's dependency check, OWASP. Sneak or SNCC? SNCC. Oh, or yeah, yes. SNYK.io. They just got a bunch of funding too, I saw yesterday. Yeah, and actually, like, I've, I've been pretty impressed with them. Like, the, their coverage of languages is pretty impressive. Yeah. Dependency check or some of the open source. Dependency check's Black awesome, except yeah, it, it doesn't cover. Well, then there's a, bun a bundler audit yep. if you're bringing in gems. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's GitHub itself. There's, the plug. there's NSP. That's right. You could just yep. send it to Ken and he'll check. Manually. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening. Just, is, that, is, is that your microservice? That's yeah. what I, I am. The microservice. Yeah, I just sit here, <laughs> I paper out and a pin and I go one by one. You by do one. like st a static code and out or just source code. Analysis. Why it took so long, Ken. But now we know. <laughs> I'm doing the, I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. Okay, uh, I did find a, a YouTube video of that talk you mentioned by Brad, so um, cool. I'm posting that now. And I will yeah, so there's another talk I'd like to plug if that's cool. Um, Absolutely, it is. I had to watch it. Um, two of the core Kubernetes engineers at Google, like. These guys are on another level, but um, let me just make sure this is it and I'll send it to you. Yeah, it's called the ins and outs of networking in Google Container Engine and Kubernetes. It's, it doesn't pertain that much to uh, GCE. It's really just like Kubernetes 101 from a networking perspective where you can just they just drill home these concepts of how networking works in Kubernetes, and it is—it uh, takes the magic out of out of it. You know, like it's not just this mythical thing that 
packets get routed and they just show up. So um, I'd recommend anybody that's in, interested in Kubernetes, I just pasted the link in our Hangout. Okay, awesome. I was I was looking for it. I was all geared up for it. All right, I reposted that, so hopefully that link worked. Oh, I cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, and I think that's the problem that most AppSec people have coming into it, right? Is they don't necessarily have a networking or like their their background is all code. So you know, being able to type a couple commands and spin up a container is great when. Hey, it pulls down my code from GitHub and it runs it. That's all I have to worry about. So that's really what we're looking for is how to how to push that level and push that understanding into yeah. into the network space or into the configuration space so that so that we can actually secure it. Right. I mean, who are you working with when it comes to like training in general? I mean, are you is it more developers that you're running into or system administrators? What's the, or I mean, yeah. way people would, you know, give us back a dump on that. That's a good question. So it's intended for everyone and not everyone in the sense of like the whole company, obviously, but it's for the software development, engineering, IT department. So it really is geared towards sysadmins will have a, a good time with it, um, especially if they're new to Kubernetes. And I think developers can really like get some takeaways on how to better package their code um, and the implications of deploying uh, what they've written to containers and how Kubernetes works from the inside out. And you know, QA probably could find some use in it, but it might some of it might just be a little bit too much that um, just wouldn't be relevant. Uh, but but really, I tried to build it for developers because that's who the people asking for this course and who I'm engaged with to, to present this course this year. Are, it's literally like the full gamut, but it's mostly for developers and sysadmins and, and DevOps teams. Obviously, uh, yeah. they'll have a little uh, they'll ha they'll have to sit through a couple lessons that are obviously maybe a little bit of review, but I. Honestly, you could. I've reviewed Kubernetes basics over and over. I mean, it's probably like once a month I'll go back and just make sure my brain is working in the sense of like where the traffic's being routed, how everything actually gets glued together. Because now there's these new features that are getting rolled out that you have to understand. Like, if if Kubernetes comes out and says, "Hey, we now encrypt secrets at rest." Everyone's super excited from the AppSec side. They're like, sick, like, that's what I want. But they don't really know why they, that was needed or what that means in the Kubernetes realm because it's etcd and it's a key value store and it's plain text and now it's not. But if you have access to the master node, there are still ways to read secrets potentially. Like, it's not, it's not like a catch-all. Um, and I think understanding how Kubernetes works is my biggest recommendation. So that's what this course really is heavy on. And we, you know, sprinkle in security as we go. And it starts with like, here's a container and here's how you secure it. Here's Kubernetes and here's why some of the defaults might not work for you. And then here's how you deploy it, but how do we get it out there so it can only talk to what it's supposed to talk to. So um, that's kind of a, the goal of the course. Uh, 
and I, I just, there might be an advanced version later, but I think there's a lot of knowledge to be spread about what's going on under the hood. And I'm still learning all the time too. So yeah, so, we've talked. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, you know, along those lines, right? Obviously, it, you know, hands-on experience or, you know, is the best um, and, you know, what you're teaching. But, you know, if you were to point somebody, you know, hey, I've got an hour and I just got dumped this, where do they start, right? I, I mean, that, that, that's always something is, you know, are there, you know, channels or something that I should be watching from a Kubernetes security perspective? How do I evaluate what I currently have? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And there's definitely places to start. And I'm trying to like think back to where I spend most of my day, which docs I'm in. Um, yeah. And the Kubernetes docs themselves are, I think they're great. Some people hate on Google documentation for whatever reason. I'm not much of a snob on, on docs in general. But they have a deploying, deploying cl cluster securely. Uh, it's not a white paper, but it's kind of a one pager that has links to all these other things, and they keep it really up to date. When like a new feature comes out, that's you know secrets encryption or or security context and things like that. Uh, that's going to give you the most bang for your buck because you're going to probably find where you need to be to dive into whatever problem you're running into. And then um, you know the talks I mentioned, those are really good too. But you know, in running Cube Bench, K U B E dash Bench, um, on your cluster or or your YAML files, your manifests uh, could also shed some light onto some major issues. That's a uh, that's from Aqua Security, and that is a just command line utility. So that's super helpful. And um, yeah, I, there's oh. Aqua Security, I just saw it yesterday, has a, a wiki, um, container technology wiki, I think. And then within that wiki, they have a Kubernetes 101, and then they have a container security um, section too. So it's aquasec.com slash wiki. So dive around there. But, they have tons of links to other things too for for Kubernetes security. Wait, I'm. Yep, securing securing secure a cluster. Yeah. Okay. That's a great piece of simple. I mean, I don't think it's simple, but it it covers the the core topics and tenets of 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 Kubernetes security. So I mean, I mean, it's funny because everything always kind of falls back to those different like you know, overarching security concepts, your authentication, your authorization, your auditing, your handling of input, you know, handling of network traffic, all, all that kind of stuff is, you know. Yep, doesn't change at all. Um, no. It's just a shiny, it's a, it's a shiny new toy that you could still put crappy code onto, mm -hmm. yep. basically. Like, you know, your web app phones are, are all there. I just think the implications of, of compromising a Kubernetes node, they, they could be pretty, I mean, huge, because if you can spin up your own, like in that talk from Brad Giesemann, like if you can spin up your own pods, pull down your own containers, I mean, you could own an AWS account 
if you were able to get your own container running on a Kubernetes cluster, uh, if you don't set things up right. And it's, you know, default, default isn't, you don't get all this stuff out of the box. Like you don't, it, secrets encryption is like, you gotta go in and like to the API server and make, you know, change some flags. You gotta do stuff that's not super straightforward to turn certain things on, especially if you're in a, a highly sensitive environment where you're like, you don't have the luxury of dealing with that. Um, so I would definitely, before you just use Kubernetes, because it sounds cool, like take a hard look at, at the security docs and make sure you're doing stuff right from day one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've because I've run into it with a couple different places that are doing, you know, DevOps and, right, that that's always their question is, hey, where do we start? So. Well, hopefully okay, that's... We'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to talk after yeah, this. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm, I'm also working on a, uh, a Kubernetes security audit offering as, as part of my consultant. Or, you know, it's like, yeah, we need web app pen tests. We'll always need that. But I, I really think there's, there's audits that need to occur and architecture reviews and yeah. things that need to happen. Because what I've also found is like, you can think you turn something on because you have it in your YAML file, you deployed it up, but until you go try to SSH to a node and you get denied, um, you don't know for sure always. It's not like, it's not absolute. So I recommend if you're gonna turn these, these features on, again, I come back to the encryption, encryption of secrets and etcd is like, go use etcd command line utility and pull up the secret you just put in, and make sure that that thing is actually encrypted because it's not like there's some button that comes up and says you're, you're good, like for sure. So um, it's like anything, you know, like it's not that straightforward to turn on and it's in alpha, I believe. So you're living on the edge a little bit. Um, so truck, I mean, verify what you're doing in your Kubernetes cluster. Cool. Yeah, we had another question um, from Ken Toller. Hey, Ken, about something that handles API to API authentication well. So between, let's see. Yeah, his is interesting because it's... Say it's, Docker containers and an old API running on ECT that allows you to get the auth up so that migration of the legacy API can be done without it. So running two auth mechanisms. I don't know if I quite understand what that question is. Okay, let's see if I can read it. Yeah, give it a read and see if it like. Did, Ken, did you understand mixed, what? So what mixed, you mixed environment, something that handles API to API auth. Well, between say Docker containers and an old. Oh, so maybe like a, like some sort of shim that you can yeah, some auth prop, proxy you can prop up and. Uh, Istio is supposed to do that sort of thing. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I can't speak to you know legacy. Well, I wouldn't really. I mean, I think Istio is a Kubernetes plugin for the most part. So I don't know if you could even prop that up on a straight up EC2 instance um, without going in and changing your legacy code. Could you? There's some sort of 
Well, isn't there an API service in or API proxy in AWS that you can set up some sort of authentication to front things, or at least in Lambda? Yeah, yeah, you'd think that there would be, right? But Lambda or you know some sort of configured API gateway to do that for you. API um, gateway—that's what it's called, and that that has auth capabilities. But I don't—I've only ever used it with Lambda like once. And yeah, you can plug it into Cognito, but then you're like setting up. You're entirely dependent on Cognito auth. So if you're okay being tied into AWS, cool. If you're not, then I wouldn't recommend it. But just burn your legacy apps down. Yeah, and I think you have to point. Um, so you'd have to point Cognito at all your routes, mm. or sorry, not Cognito um, API gateway. API yeah. gateway. API gateway at all your routes. The good thing about Cognito, I, I can say, I don't know if you guys used it, but there there are some good things about it, like. Um, you can do, well, I think we looked at that, Seth. Um, so there's, you can, it's, you can do SMS, uh, two factor auth. I think you can do, um, you know, TOTP, uh, two factor auth. You can do like, you can configure pretty easily like the, uh, now do you want to verif- require verification of email? Like you can do all those normal authentication security mechanisms and then you plug it into API gateway and, Effectively, the user sends on a uh, whatever, t- I don't know, token, we'll say. I don't remember what it is. And uh, whenever they hit one of those API gateway routes and that that token or whatever it is, that's that comes from having authentic, authenticated cog- to Cognito. That's my understanding. I don't know if you all see something different. Yeah. Um, just that, that's all you, man. Oh, no, I... I... That's exactly, I, yeah. I, I don't necessarily have any other, you know, feedback on that, right? Uh, we would have to investigate further. Um, but I think that's what Cam's asking, right? Is setting up something without two auth mechanisms that can actually talk between the two. I don't know. Well, legacy is always a hard part to deal with. I mean, but I just I, drop it. There's no, there, there's nothing in legacy that we need, right? from a business perspective? No. So the other question is, are you pumped about EKS? <laughs> Which I didn't even know EKS was a thing. I'm, a la- thing. I'm lagging yeah. on my AWS knowledge these days. Oh, um, one Managed- thing to go back to that last question, I just remembered that, I don't know if this is even like the answer or would work, but I, I've used Kong before as an API gateway. Uh, It's just like a higher, like a management layer that you can plug in in front of different APIs. And that has lots of like a whole plugin ecosystem uh, to go, I think it's just a Golang project or you run it in Docker or something. So you might be able to front anything legacy there and it could handle mutual TLS or something. I can't really speak for it, but I know that that's, it lives in between um, services like that. I mean, we. I mean, I, I messed with Kong before, and uh, it's like you said, it runs on a on a in a container, and um, it's configurable. The last time I used it, there were, I want to say it was basically it was basic authentication, which was a problem. Good for sure. development, okay for development. I mean, all this shit is, to me a little bit annoying and 
Um, uh, yeah, I think it's know. actually pretty active. So maybe there might be some plugin something. But anyways, EKS, uh, I, I guess I don't care I, because the whole premise and point of Kubernetes is to be cloud agnostic, not even cloud. Like you're, you're running on your raspberry Pi cluster if you want. Um, that's really cool. The Amazon is like, that just shows me that Kubernetes is, is dominating, right? It's if they're going to pull the trigger and build an infrastructure for Kubernetes, it's for good reason because that's what the world wants. But no, I think it's great. I think more people should, take advantage of more uh, managed Kubernetes services that are out there just because it, it does take the burden of, and, and at Invoca when I was there, we had our ops guys building a cluster manually and we needed, they needed to support UDP and all these crazy things. And we had to use like, it was just like this whole flannel network overlay that had to be disabled and like, Building and maintaining your own cluster is, if you cannot do that and let AWS or GKE or whatever you want to do uh, take care of that stuff, then by all means, go for it. I don't know what a, uh, EKS offers that others don't, though. Well, by the way, I did want to clarify because I, I kind of was, uh, what, what I, I wanted to fully finish the thought. Uh, when I said annoying, what I meant was annoying in development. All this stuff's annoying in development for me. It's just, it's extra. It's, it goes back to another, like what you're talking about is it being kind of a business decision, whether it's security or whether it's just the overhead of working with this and other, and multiple teams working with like my bunch of microservices and um, Kubernetes. It's, it's a factor. I mean, I felt that pain before. Yeah, and most of the time, developers don't want to go down the Kubernetes route. Like, it turns into an ops problem. Someone says COPS is talking about COPS. I haven't heard of that before on Kubernetes. Yeah, um, that's a, like, it, uh, let's see, KubeADM uh, is another one. I think it's it's just one to build Kubernetes clusters in basically a single command. And that's a really popular one, uh, COPS is. I haven't played with it because I still am using GKE, but I, I, sh I should go through and evaluate all these command line utilities. But COPS is a good one. KubeADM is another one that I actually use within Minikube to bootstrap Kubernetes, bootstrap Kubernetes Minikube clusters because KubeADM starts up certain services that the standard local cluster that Kubernetes uses, uh, that Minikube uses, doesn't. So there's lots of different bootstrapping mechanisms. Um, and COPS is, yeah, I think what most people use in AWS, probably. I don't know if they, what else? I, I, I don't know. I yeah. went ahead and linked it, though. Cool. Links for days. So, oh, and then, so there was a feed, there was feedback and it was basically like the reason for using EKS um, is just basically offloading painful parts of Kubernetes to AWS. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's what the cool thing is you can also use AWS's 
key storage and S3 and all the stuff that we know and love about AWS, you get to keep your Kubernetes cluster there and not have to use something like COPS, which is, which is probably fine, but people want a native solution. So, um, and I just think ECS isn't, it's just not Kubernetes. It's not, it's not the same. Yeah. You just put your database on S3, then you tell us where it's at, allow anonymous authentication. And yeah. Then, uh, well, they probably already did that. Profit. Yeah. They probably already did that. Right. Well, yeah. And you would never like put, use our backer. You would never use any sort of like authentication for, for your Kubernetes API either. That's uh, well, I was going to mention the Tesla thing. Uh, Redlock released a uh, February 20th, like a what kind of happened with, you know, I, I know the last episode I was just in chat. You guys are talking about that. Um, they were able to find the AWS S3 access key and secret access key via um, Kubernetes. Yep. On the, yeah. So the, I'll paste this to you. I mean, you, your Google foo is strong, but here. Um, yeah, so I think this is just the beginning of of people going after Kubernetes. I, I really, I mean, people have been looking at open S3 buckets and stuff forever, but Kubernetes, I think there's lots of potential in both you know, the bad side of things, but also for us as security professionals to start writing tools that can help audit Kubernetes clusters, defend against certain types of privilege escalation attacks, um, and even just like mass scanning tools. That's kind of style, like who has open Kubernetes APIs without auth that we can just go kubectl create and just do stuff um because they exist you know so yeah it'd be interesting to see i mean with showdown or whatever you know I, i'm sure somebody's looked at it right but it may be a yeah interesting it, place to start right? yeah I mean, and, talk about all the little utilities that uh jerry gamblin has been writing you know that, that this would this fits hand in hand with those as far as monitoring for the different services and everything else that's out there, whether that's Redis or, you know, anytime that a management tool is open to the public, that's a bad thing, right? It never, yeah, it never ends very well. No. Oops, yeah. So, and, and it just the implications are just high with Kubernetes. That's all. That's my concern from a defensive perspective is like, okay, we're not, we're not just talking like an S3 bucket necessarily. Like we just saw AWS keys, open from a web UI, yep. uh, not, not good. Um, so, well, and it, it becomes another management problem, right? I mean, it, because it, it's so easy for a developer to go into AWS or into Google cloud and actually spin something up and they're pushing all these secrets and everything into it. And you may not have any idea as a security team that that's happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, the rogue it is a bigger problem nowadays than it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago because of the cloud services. So, yeah. And on that note, um, there, some people like to split up their Kubernetes clusters and, you know, dev, QA, prod, whatever namespaces. Um, and that, that can work, but I think your risk of 
messing that up is high. So I would recommend just go with separate clusters. Like it's almost like different AWS accounts. Like just do it. If you want your production environment to only be managed by these certain people and you don't want the headache of bolting on all these different layers of security um, and maintaining that as well, like you get, there's a lot you get out of the box from just creating a separate account. And I would recommend that with Kubernetes if possible. So yeah. Cool. Good. Um, let's see. I think we had, we have another question. I'm trying to keep up. Uh, yes. What sort of test frameworks are people using to help avoid these sort of configuration mistakes with Kubernetes? Oh, like a test harness. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I know you've de- you, Yeah, you can definitely speak to that. That's part Go, of it. Um, well, you kind of, it's kind of choose your own adventure, really. I, I mean, I haven't come across a, a good framework for like writing tests or anything like that. Um, the thing that I would start with is running something like uh, uh, Cube, what it is, the Aquasec tool, Cube Bench. Uh, make sure you're passing all of your all of your tests uh, and, and through that scan in, in CI and CD and whatnot. And I I don't know, like use a trusted repository and. So, so along those lines, KubeBench, does it just check the configuration files or is it doing actual like dynamic tests, like the SSH tests you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff is it's like, you almost need to write custom tests with, uh, because KubeBench is really just taking a YAML file. Okay. I don't think it, I don't think it actually has any sort of, uh, like it doesn't run in your cluster or anything. Um, Sysdig, Falco is an interesting open source uh, container security project as well. Uh, I had a little bit of trouble getting it to do meaningful things in my Kubernetes cluster, but I do think that was a while ago, and I do think they've also come a long way in the Kubernetes realm. So check out uh, Sysdig Falco, and that's that's more of a sidecar. Uh, it, it basically is like, monitoring files on those OSX style uh, container that runs alongside your pods. But yeah, I mean, a test, like a a test harness or a test framework, you could use something like a gauntlet, I guess, you know, where you're like, why not? I mean, you could say it's just hard, the dynamic nature of Kubernetes. um, You're really like, well, yeah, you've almost got to suck in all the YAML files and then the current running configuration, and yeah, it's not a, well, it's then not you a just, problem no, to solve. No, and then you just gave another tool, basically admin access to your cluster. So then yeah, it's... That's I'll, one, I'll pop something up on GitHub. Just trust it. It's fine. Yeah, and that's one more service token that you need to provide to it. And I, I don't know, like, it, if it's worth it, then sure, but... That's the thing. It's tricky, right? It's uh, we don't have these mature tool sets, and you know maybe the twist locks and the Aqua Securities do all the things, but I, I really don't evaluate many commercial tools, so I can't speak for them. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to get your take on some of that. Um, you know, maybe in another episode, right? You know, if we could 
put you in touch with some of those vendors because I've done some interesting or like demos with you know both Twistlock and you know like Threat Stack and some of the info yeah. that's coming back out of there is pretty interesting, and definitely it's picking up like the Vuln scanner type. You know, hey, guess what? You're running a outdated instance of Ubuntu as your initial sure container, right. That's that's, that's a stuff given pretty that. easy to find if you know where to look. But yeah, and I really think that I don't know not to plug training again, but like, okay, I still fall back to like more knowledge is power when it comes to any of this stuff. It's AWS is no different. Like you can get yourself in a tangled mess of AWS services that somehow become secure, insecure, and you don't even know it. Um, the same way you can, can with Kubernetes. So I really think you kind of need some eyes on this, this sort of technology right now, mainly because I'm not a I'm not a firm believer in like throw a tool in there and we're we're good to go. Anyways, they can definitely help. Phone scanners help. It all is good stuff. Um, but you need a team knowing what that report is sending back to you. Like what to do with that? Is it a false positive? Um, and really, in the container world, it's I just don't think enough people would be able to take action on certain things that are getting spit out anyways. So. Well, yeah, I mean, the size of the DevOps team is usually pretty small in comparison to the number of developers and people that are spinning stuff up, right? I, I, yeah. Just in general. Yeah, and and really, like, dev is prod and internal is external, and you can't just say, oh, we have a separate environment, we're good, because I guarantee somebody somewhere didn't mean to, but they slipped up and had some shared services, and that's all it takes, so... Um, there's lots of opportunities to pivot in, in this new world we're in. Uh, so definitely just learn up on it and, and read the docs. And I, I just suggest spinning up a cluster, SSH to the master node, see what is going on in there, because it's it's not just kubectl wizardry. Cool. Good. Well, yeah, we've been going for a while. Um, oh, yeah. We do have one more. I mean, this is the most amount of questions I've ever seen on any of these episodes. So people are clearly interested in what you have to say. Um, By my training. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> By Jimmy's training. No, um, so th this one is basically like, do you trust Kubernetes, Kubernetes Secret Store? Do you recommend something else? Somebody was like, don't use CyberArk. I don't know anything about any of this. So no. Uh, I can't speak to CyberArk, but... Um, I have heard a couple of my larger customers discussing CyberArk. But anyways, I can speak. The Kubernetes secret store has gotten a lot of heat over the past, like, two years. Everyone's just like, you can access it from any node. Every, you know, pods have access to it. It's not encrypted, this, that, and the other thing. Um, I would say it's it's come a long way. I actually have a whole, I'm taking this, like, huge... I should just publish it as a blog post. I should do that more often now that I'm talking about that. But, um, but like, secrets are are getting better, and especially, like, if you manage them correctly and plug in something like a vault into your Kubernetes cluster or outside your Kubernetes cluster, I think they have their place. Um, they don't give you quite the protection you would get from using something like vault, obviously. Um, and again, you can like 
you can mess up secrets and everyone's like, they're base 64 encoded and that's it. That's not encryption, but that's not, I mean, that's not the point. They just consume base 64 entities. So that's, that's how Kubernetes just ingests secrets. But I do find them, it, it's definitely useful and I'm still like a little unclear on, there's conflicting documentation on, um, so Kubernetes in the doc says like only a pod that needs access that claims to need access to that secret gets access to that secret, but and not any other pod. But um, I haven't got in and like tested that out fully, and I haven't found a lot of documentation on it. So if you're going to use secrets, again, understand how it works. Plug in something like Vault if if that's what you're using, or, or KMS. Um, and I think that those can played nicely as well. Um, I in in the training we spin up Vault in the in the Kubernetes cluster and then use that to deploy secrets to Kubernetes uh, into the pods themselves. So you could do a hybrid, um, but I do think that's going to be an area that they will continue to to work on in the future because all people want is straight up Vault backend. <laughs> In Kubernetes and just to be done with it and to not use this etcd encryption thing like they, nobody wants that right now including me so um i i see like kelsey hightower is working on that there's a lot of like momentum towards a better secret backend so just keep an eye on it and um use the encryption and i mean don't be afraid to use it if that's if that's what you got but if you have another key store uh that you're already using, plug that in. Well, we have pumped you for information. I mean, this has been a an onslaught of great questions, great answers. So this and you is guys, said, yeah, you. Said we were just gonna sit and hang out and drink beer. <laughs> I know, right? We really, yeah. The the the, the viewers really put you through the ringer here. So no, thank I, you. I love it, man. Like this is a this is what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm I'm really interested in this space. So if anybody has any questions. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter or, or nestemachine.io is my one landing page that I haven't had a chance to work on too much, but uh, I got an email address and yeah, happy to talk about any of this stuff. Well, yeah, and if you're not, I mean, you know, in a couple months again, if you've got more time, we'd love to have you back on mm -hmm. and we can dig deeper into some of this. Yeah, and I think maybe after I do this first round of, of trainings on site and I talk to some people and see what's out in the wild, I'll have a better uh, a better perspective and, and able to give like you know super detailed recommendations or maybe everything's gravy and everyone's using all of the things they should be. So yes, that is <laughs> that is how the world works. I always come in with that expectation, so it's all good. So you're always disappointed. That's what you're <laughs> Isn't that why we got into this job? Is that going to work? You haven't been in the industry long enough that <laughs> At this point, we go in with low expectations. So if they have anything, we're surprised and happy, right? You just you, you cross the void into a security curmudgeon. Yeah. yeah. I felt so those, I felt those like, urges, where, where yeah. This gray beard comes from. It's not from... Wait, I yeah. need to be a teenager too, whatever. Hey, um, so do you blog at Mesta Machine or because you had mentioned you had a blog and I wanted to make sure we got that linked up on the, the 
live chat and also in the description of the video. No, I don't. It's just literally a landing page. I had a blog. It's no longer existent, and I need to be more vocal. So, yeah. It's like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I like doing stuff like this because I can just get in and talk and it's time blocked. And I, I've had like to do list, like blog something for like six months now. So. Well, we appreciate it. I know the viewers appreciate it. And you gave us, you gave us all a bunch of information. So seriously, thank yeah. you for, 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 for joining us, for answering these questions. Like I, like you said, we were telling you like, Oh, it's just going to be, you know, shooting, shooting the shit. And here we are. And now almost, you know, almost an hour and a half I'm later. Happy. I'm like, more oh, than, oh, well tell me about this. All right. Yeah. More than happy to do it. It's uh, it's always fun hanging out with you guys. And if I'd love to like figure out a demo or something we can do in a couple months, that's yeah. More, sure. more interactive or something. Um, there's a lot of fun to be had. So, uh, any before we uh, stop the broadcast, anything else you want to mention? Any conferences that you're going to be at? Uh, obviously, um, anything that you you can think of. Yeah, I mean, when you said that, I was like, I'm I'm kind of taking this year as a you know bond with bond with a little one and get my business churning. Uh, if I'll, I'll I'll come talk to anybody if you want to pay me so. <laughs> no, I mean, I just don't have any conferences really, honestly, on, on the radar at the moment. So just kind of taking a breather this year. I, I, I did miss apps at Cali. I'll be at Loco Moco Sec um, in Hawaii, and uh, it should be really hard work. And that'll be a great, that'll be a really awesome conference. And then maybe as things stabilize, I'll, I'll be, I have a lot of travel lined up right now for, uh, for giving this training. So I'm super excited about that. It's just, not in the limelight, unfortunately. Fair enough. I mean, I totally get that, especially with a newborn two months old now. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's for also, you know, I'm, I'm assuming for your, your wife's sanity as well. And it's probably a good idea. It's tough when you try to justify conferences that you're self-funding versus having your corporate sponsorships. It's, it's a different, like, mentality you know yeah. i have to really want to be there <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's being independence i mean i i know that's a whole other that's basically a whole other episode that we could you and seth could just elaborate mm -hmm. extensively on the on the interesting parts of that yeah that'd be cool yeah maybe we'll do that next time awesome cool. all, right. all right well uh, thanks again. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, close out this broadcast. If you have any questions, Oh, actually, before I stop two two other things, if you have any questions, topic suggestions, speaker suggestions, whatever, anyone you want to hear or ask questions of or whatever, um, whatever it is, absolute appsec at gmail.com. So it's absolute appsec at gmail.com. Another thing is we do have our site up and running absolute appsec.com. It's still kind of a work in progress. And we should have the uh, like pasted there a way to sign up for Slack, and then we'll re you know we'll review just so we can filter out spam and then approve you. Um, that way, we have like a little community we can kind of cultivate on Slack, and these links aren't ephemeral. Anyways, those updates aside, um, thanks everyone for joining us. Seth, anything you want to say before we close it out? Uh, nope. Yeah, visit the site. Uh, let us know how it how it looks or what's crappy. That's great too. 
But thanks again, Jimmy, for joining us. And we'll see everybody next week. Cool. It's been fun. Thanks for the questions. Thanks, everyone. All right. Take it easy.